0: Okay. We are going to be in Exodus 19 this morning. You might be wondering what Exodus 19 has to do with the Advent. Hopefully we'll find out. Nineteen years ago Most of us were minding our own business at 8.46 a.m. when a plane flew into one of the World Trade Center Towers in New York City. Within minutes, it was all over the news, and many of us watched in horror as another plane hit the second tower 17 minutes later, and then another hit the Pentagon. Within an hour, both towers had collapsed with smoke and ash, filling the streets of the city for blocks. The section of the Pentagon that was hit also collapsed. And then inside a fourth flight that was hijacked and headed for D.C., a group of brave people fought back, and that plane crashed into the ground in Pennsylvania field. All of us who were alive to witness it remember those days, or that day specifically, in vivid detail. Especially if we happen to see any of the footage of these things happening. It's difficult to see how anyone could really forget such an experience. It's been said that 9-11 is this generation's Pearl Harbor. That makes sense. The two events are really similar. In both cases, something extremely unexpected happened in the sky filled with smoke and ash and fire. In both cases, survivors recounted the harrowing details of what happened through fear and trembling. Both events have been memorialized in our country, and those who were alive when they happened have never forgotten. Now, why would we start our celebration of Advent by trudging back through the pain of these events? I'll admit, it's a strange way to begin with the most wonderful time of the year. The reason is simple. Reliving these experiences is the closest we could possibly come to understanding sort of what the Israelites experienced with Moses when God came down to meet them in Exodus 19. And like I said, Exodus 19 is also a weird place to begin our celebration of Advent. But I think it will all make more sense by the time we reach the conclusion. And until then, I will say this by way of explanation. This year's Advent theme is when God came down. That's kind of what Advent means, the arrival. And so today and for the rest of Advent, we are going to be looking at stories and passages in the Bible where God came down, culminating on Christmas Eve with our celebration of the arrival of Jesus. We have seen that the Exodus story is a pattern for understanding salvation in various uh, weeks past, Slaves under oppression, freed by God's chosen one, being led to a land of promise. And that's made real for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So for Advent this year, we're going to trace this idea of God coming down all the way from its roots in the story of the Exodus to the coming of Jesus. In the beginning of the Exodus story, God told Moses about coming down to deliver Israel. We find this part, this little short bit in Exodus 3, verses seven through eight. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and then to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. After using Moses to free the people of Egypt, God led them to a special location in the Sinai Mountains, where he would again come down to meet them. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1, if you would follow along with me. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on the day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called out to him out of the mountain saying, "'Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob "'and tell the people of Israel, "'You yourselves have seen what I did the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for all the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, they were, there was thunder and lightning, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. May God bless the reading of this word. Okay. So the first thing we notice in this passage is the detailed setting. It's the third new moon since they left Egypt, which translates roughly to about three months They had crossed the sea and watched as God destroyed their oppressors who had pursued them. They had been provided food and drink by the Lord as they made their way ever further into the wilderness until they finally reached the mountain of Sinai. This is important because of where they met with the Lord. Because of where God chose to come down and meet with them. It, It wasn't in a building. It wasn't in any sort of safe space of any kind. It was in the wilderness, the most rugged and dangerous place imaginable. That isn't a minor detail. In fact, it might be one of the most important details of this entire story, because these days people seem to look for God in safe places, in sacred buildings, Mm -hmm. in holy shrines. It's as if we have become spiritual tourists but god consistently meets people in the most unexpected and often the most dangerous places like behind bars or maybe in hospital beds the reality of this is that we are really no different than the israelites who were there at the foot of the mountain that day we too have been freed from our slavery to sin and death and we are on our way to the promised land. But in order to get there, we have to go through the wilderness and meet with God, which is not something we are very keen to do because in our culture we have been taught to avoid such things, to take the easy route, to live our best lives now. We are people well-versed in the art of avoiding difficulty. The prophets would say that we have grown fat and dull. It's hard to disagree. Our culture and even many Christian preachers and writers have distilled the faith to a handful of easy steps that promise predictable and comfortable results. But that's certainly not the faith we find in Scripture. Throughout the Bible, the Lord's people regularly failed to meet with him when things were going smoothly. But when things were going sideways, they would call out for a deliverer. How many times did we see this play out in the story of the judges that we looked at? So while we may not have to make our own way out into the actual desert to find God on some mountain, we need to recognize that being in the right place matters. And I don't necessarily mean any sort of physical location, though I've often connected with God in the wilder places I've been, such as when I sat on an isolated beach about 25 miles west of Santa Barbara, and watched as all manner of wildlife welcomed the morning. God was definitely there. Or, like when I walked through the woods of Crawfordsburn in Northern Ireland, and the birds were waking up, and the waves of Belfast Law were pushing against the sand and rocks just beyond the trees. God was there too. And maybe you have had similar experiences out in the wild. It's good for us to get out in the natural world and experience the wonder of God's creation. But the wilderness isn't just a physical description. It's a spiritual description. Because in the spiritual wilderness, we find that we are not in control. That we have to rely on God's providence and sustenance. That we need the pillar of cloud guiding us by day and the pillar of fire guiding us by night as we make our way. Think about this. Israel was supposed to be a peculiar people, set apart for the Lord. They were supposed to be different, but they lost their identity when they became slaves in Egypt. After the Lord freed them and led them out of their slavery, they entered the wilderness with no real clue who they were, no real sense of identity, And it was in the wilderness where God met with them, where God came down. And when God came down, right after this passage that we read, he gave them the Torah, the law. And the idea there being, here is who you are. here's who I want you to be. Here's what it looks like to be mine, be part of my kingdom. So in a sense, the wilderness is both where they were lost and where they were found, which means the wilderness represents, for us, the journey, the way. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. But for the most part, Jesus lived in the wilderness, traveling around, proclaiming God's kingdom. Only on occasion did he enter the city, and only on occasion did he enter Jerusalem only for certain festivals. For the most part, he met the people in the wilderness, even fed the people in the wilderness. Which means that the wilderness is where we are most likely to encounter God and discover who we are. Maybe maybe in the actual wilderness, maybe that's how it works. It did for me. But more importantly, in the spiritual wilderness, in the deep places of our soul where we rarely tread, the places where it's hard to find nourishment, where the path before us is both difficult as well as dangerous, such as in the wilderness of not knowing what to do in our lives, in the wilderness of financial hardship, that like we just talked about, in the wilderness of breakups or divorce, in the wilderness of loss, and in the wilderness of pain and sorrow, or the wilderness of depression. All of these are examples of the more difficult and dangerous places we travel in the course of our lives. But there's no avoiding these places. They are the path that leads to the mountain of the Lord and beyond them to the land of promise because they are the path that lead us out of our slavery of sin and death. The path Jesus walked ahead of us, picking up our broken pieces and carrying them to the cross so that through his death and resurrection, we might experience a new life where all is made right. That was the basis of the promise that God gave Moses right here. The children of Israel, when they arrived at the mountains of Sinai, heard this. They experienced it. The idea was that though they had been slaves and had lost their identity as a people, God would make them his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That everything that had been broken would be mended. Every wrong would be made right. And if they followed the way he was laying out for them, they would make it through the wilderness and arrive at the land of promise land flowing with milk and honey, which was both a physical and a spiritual thing. Then verse 8, the people agreed to this. They seemed ready to follow the Lord in the way that was being set before them, at which point the Lord told Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe you forever." Even after the plagues, even the parting of the sea, the pillars of cloud and fire being provided with food and water during their wilderness trek, the Lord seemed to know that the people still needed to see something that would mark this moment in their memory forever. So he was going to come down. How true is that for us this morning? Haven't we been freed as well? Haven't we been led by the Lord? Haven't we experienced the Lord's providence? And yet, don't we still want or need to experience God coming down to us? Don't we still need the Lord to meet with us? Isn't that what Jesus was all about? Isn't that what we still crave in our lives, even as we celebrate Advent, the coming of the Lord? It's not wrong to still need the Lord as much today as we did when we first started following him. To still desperately want him to come down and meet with us. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think it's absolutely necessary. It's when we think we don't need him that we have strayed from the path. It's when we think we have it all figured out that we end up lost. I'm reminded of a... uh, A cartoon. It was called *The Far Side*. It was one of my favorites. I love *The Far Side*. And there's this one where a man and his wife are in a car, but they're on the moon, and the Earth is in the background. And she goes, "Now look where the Earth is, Frank. Move over and let me drive." (laughs) Right. See, it's when we forget where we're going, where we've been, that we really don't know how to get where we're headed. The Lord wanted to mark this experience like a sign for Israel so that they would always remember it. In verses 10 through 15, the Lord laid out the way it would all work. And we need to pay close attention to this part as well because it's thick with a deeper meaning. When we hear that it took three days and that on the third day they would approach the mountain purified, what other span of three days immediately comes to mind? resurrection, right? Is it possible that this is just some grand coincidence? Or did God tell them to set aside this period of time for purification so that generations later it would ring in their ears when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and their ultimate purification was brought to completion? Was the Lord just randomly throwing out numbers or was being freed from slavery, passing through the water, and being purified on the third day, all related to something bigger that he was doing. It seems clear that Advent had been the plan ever since the garden. That the Lord coming down at various points in the history of Israel was meant to be a signpost to the moment when God would come down in a new and miraculous way. By becoming one of us, a child born not in any palace or high place, but in a lowly carpenters to a lowly carpenter's wife inside a dirty stable in a village in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. Have we read this story before and somehow missed the root of advent beginning to grow in the heart of Israel's wilderness experience? And we somehow fooled ourselves into believing Advent could be a reality for us without our own wilderness experience where we meet the God who comes down only when we have surrendered the idea that we have it all figured out? Verses 12 through 13, the Lord told Moses to set up a boundary at the base of the mountain and that anyone who crossed the boundary would be put to death. Seems pretty harsh, right? Why would God make such a command? What danger was there in the people approaching the Lord on the mountain? Wasn't the whole point of this for the Lord to come down and meet with the people? Didn't the Lord just promise that they would be a kingdom of priests? Why couldn't a priest approach the Lord? And if Moses, who was a murderer, could go up there, why couldn't anyone else? Seems all a bit confusing, right? Well, there are a couple of things going on here. One is that Israel, as a people, had been surrounded by the Egyptian gods for hundreds of years, numerous generations. Their ideas of who God was or who God should be had taken a beating. In this moment, the Lord was reestablishing for them who he was and what he was like. And on the front end of that is the concept of holiness, which makes approaching God a risky proposition. Even the priests in the temple years later had to tie a rope around their ankles when they went into the Holy of Holies, just in case. This is like that. Boundaries aren't a bad thing. We need boundaries. They help us understand our place. But on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, another reality emerges from this part of the story. We know that the temple veil was torn and that it signified our ability to come before the Lord without fear. But as we look back at this situation through the lens of what Jesus did, we begin to understand another level of meaning here. Drawing near to God is still dangerous, just just not in the same way. We won't be struck dead, necessarily, or stoned to death by our fellow church members. At least we shouldn't be. Instead, what we see is that we can draw near to God without fear, but that it's still risky. The danger now, however, is to our old way of thinking, the slave mentality that we've carried with us, the old lives that we seem to want to hang on to, broken concepts we have of who we are or who God is, all of this is in serious danger as we approach the Lord. And rightfully so. In the cross, our lives as we know them, as we might have wanted them to be or thought they should be or maybe even weren't sure what they should be, all of that is crucified with Christ, just as Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20. The version of us that can draw near to the Lord and walk away from such an encounter is the virgin version that is stripped clean of all the broken and fallen, sinful ways we carried into the wilderness from our slavery. It's all the stuff we should have left behind but didn't. We were watching uh, The Prince of Egypt this week, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, Jackson had said, we, we need to watch this, and we watched it. And I remember this one part as they're going through the water, the children of Israel. This old man's cart gets stuck on a rock or on something, and he's pulling and tugging and he's he's trying to get it. And somebody finally comes along and goes, leave it. Leave it. You don't need it. And that's the idea we're talking about here. It's this idea of uh, baggage that we seem to like to drag around behind us wherever we go, and and then we end up unpacking it on ourselves or on others at all the wrong moments. It's all the junk we should have thrown out when we first came to the Lord, but we hung on to for some reason. Stuff we think we need. Stuff we think defines us, gives us identity. Stuff that we desire. Stuff we think we can't live without. But when we come to the Lord, who has come down to meet us, especially when we do so with the advent of Christ, our Savior, in view. All of that stuff is put to death. All of it gets left behind. Paul explained this shift in identity in Romans 8, 13 through 14, where he wrote, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. See the identity shift that takes place there? We are children of God, and our identity as slaves of sin and death cannot survive close proximity with the presence of the Lord. It just can't. The closer we get, the more it's burned away. Like in Malachi three two, where we read, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. You know that refining fire, I don't know how many of you have ever worked with that sort of thing, but if you want pure silver or gold or those sorts of things, you put it in the hottest heat imaginable and it burns away all the extra stuff. Just sort of melts away. And then you have the purity of it. That's what he's talking about here. Paul explained this in 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15, saying, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, and it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I think this might be why so many of us want to be saved, but aren't very interested in following the Lord into the wilderness to meet with him at the mountain. And the truth is that we all know what will happen. We know the danger of drawing near to the Lord. and We don't want to let go of our old ways. We don't want to be made new, so we end up pretending. We convince ourselves that we can be followers of Jesus at a distance, that we can live how we want and still be Christians, still be believers. But the hard question we have to face this morning as we begin Advent is this. If we aren't drawing near to the mountain of the Lord and experiencing the sort of refinement Malachi and Paul referred to, the death of our old way of life, and what are we doing? And who do we think we are fooling? This is why God's warning was so stern, because by the very nature of who God is, the holiness of God will burn away anything unholy, purifying anything impure and making clean Anything unclear, which means death for us until the advent of Christ and continues to mean death for our old way of life even now. That's the seed of advent, that the Lord came down to be among his people and that it was devastating to the slave mentality they were carrying, that it was just as devastating during the life and ministry of Jesus And was the prime reason so many were threatened by him. And that it remains just as devastating today. For all our brokenness. For all our sin and sorrow. For all our baggage that we haul around. The advent of Christ floods in. and Wipes it all away. If we'll simply open up. Because there's no way to reach the promised land without heading into the wilderness and drawing near to the mountain of the Lord. There's no way to do that without leaving everything behind and becoming something new. So as we head into the wilderness and experience the advent of the Lord during this season of celebration, let's remember what it all means. It's the most hopeful devastation we could ever know. It's the most peaceful destruction we could ever endure. It's the most joyous loss we could ever possibly feel. And it's the most love we will ever encounter in our lives. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, as we come before you this morning, in this story of your children, meeting with you as you come down to them on the mountain, out in the middle of the wilderness. As all of that rests on our hearts and minds, Father, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would take that and make it alive inside of us. That whatever spiritual wilderness we have wandered into, you will meet us there. That whatever deep, dark place in our soul that we're afraid to travel that we're afraid to lay at your feet Father that, that those things will become evident to us and that, that we will deal with them by releasing them, by leaving them behind and if confession needs to be a part of that and repentance so be it change us work in our hearts and minds, make us new, give us a a hunger and a thirst to follow you where you lead. Even as that's a wilderness and a mountain where the things that we want and desire and think we need and all that gets left behind, may we come to you May we follow you and may we trust in you and experience your love. In Jesus' name, amen.